Hey, massage friends, this is your host, Stephanie, and you're listening to the USO LMT Massage Podcast. Today, I have three very special guests with me, Susan Salvo, Rob Haddow, and Jamie Johnston, and we'll be discussing evidence-informed practice and corrective exercise and probably some other things. Um, So let's go ahead and start with having my guests introduce themselves. So Susan, why don't you go ahead and start and tell our listeners a little bit about you? Well, thank you for inviting me here, Stephanie, today. I'm very excited to be here with Jamie and Robert. Uh, I've been a massage therapist since 1982, so this is my 40th year in practice. Very excited. Wow. Yeah, very That's excited. massive. I uh, went to a massage school in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Right now, I am teaching at two massage schools, uh, teaching at one in Louisiana, one in Albuquerque. And I've written two major massage textbooks, both entry-level massage textbooks, one written, written for practicing practitioners. Uh, the first is Massage Therapy Principles and Practice, which in, is in its seventh edition right now. So this is about almost a 30-year publication. Very, very excited. Sold over a million copies. And the other textbooks is Mosby's Pathology for Massage Professionals in its fifth edition. Very much rock and roll on the evidence-based practice. Do a lot with uh, item writing for licensure, item writing for board certification. I do a lot with um, expert reports, which is also very evidence-based uh, relationship with massage therapy. I hope we can talk to you about that today. It's fascinating. I've done some research myself. I have a doctorate degree in education, and uh, I've done three research studies myself, and I'm also on the committee that actually evaluates case reports, which are different than case studies, and we'll make that, that distinction very clear. And I've been doing that with the Massage Therapy Foundation for about seven or eight years. So I do a lot of public speaking. In fact, I have just signed a contract with the American Massage Therapy Association to speak at their national convention. And my topic happens to be out with the old and in with the truth. So very yeah. much evidence-based. And I'm going to do a lot of myth busting and just a lot of uh, my 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 vision is to give massage therapists, massage practitioners a new thought. And that's really it, to, to, to unhinge from their confirmation bias, unhinge from their uh, anchor, what's called anchoring bias, and really approach things with, uh, everything goes on the chopping block. And that's one big thing I say, everything on the chopping block, get rid of all your old ideas and allow yourself to be malle- malleable, like, like the tabula rasa in psychology. So, um, so just a little bit about me. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time, Susan, to come on the show. Really excited to have you. All right, Jamie, how about you? Tell us a little bit about you. Oh, uh, well, I've been a massage therapist since 2011. Um, let's see. And most of my practice throughout my career has been focused, uh, while there's been clinical practice, uh, it's been a lot of focus on sport. Uh, worked with our local hockey team for seven years. I was the head trainer and medical director with the team for a year. Uh, I worked with our national rugby sevens men's team for a year. I've been with Hockey Canada and the women's development program for the last six or seven years. I'm actually going out for a camp with them next week. Um, and then, Five or six years ago, I started my website, which is the Massage Therapist Development Center, which is really focused on a lot of evidence-based information. So looking at a lot of the latest research and how we can apply it in practice and and how we can use it. Um, And then, of course, I teach continuing education courses uh, that are mainly based around therapeutic movement and therapeutic exercise for massage therapists and have 
a bunch of new courses in the works uh, that are based around actually uh, hypermobility and exercise for massage therapists and working on another one with a friend on focusing more on exercise and movement for uh, women who are dealing with breast cancer and especially mastectomies. Um, and then of course, all the other courses are based on just general population and how to incorporate more movement into our treatments, because I think that's more important than what we do with our hands. Yeah. And Rob, how about you? Oh, my name's Rob Haddo. I'm a RMT and a sports injury therapist. I've been in practice since uh, 2008 and it's a bit of a diverse approach. I, I, don't massage anymore. I haven't done a massage, like a classic Swedish massage in since October 5th, 2015. Um, yeah, I do a lot of exercise-based rehab. I do a lot of filming and film different movement explorations. I really try to tackle a lot of the gray zone between evidence and practicality. The... The strict evidence is one thing, but when we're working with a person instead of a people, you got to kind of shut your pie hole and listen, right? <laughs> and so there's a lot of that question we hear from therapists. Well, why should this matter to me? Or oh, are you just saying I shouldn't be doing anything then? You probably hear that chirp a lot and kind of trying to make the evidence and the practical approach marry in the middle a little bit more. I write for Massage Therapy Today fairly regularly. I contribute just about every quarter in their publication. And I've written a bunch of blog crap and things like that and done a bunch of interviews and podcasts and the whole spiel. But mostly I spend a lot of time working with, um, with oh shit patients and question mark patients. So uh, I work with a lot of the therapists in my area and what they'll do is they'll reach out to me if they have a patient who's not really responding to their approach and they might come and sit in on the treatment and we'll troubleshoot together we'll go over and we'll brainstorm with that patient there and it sounds awkward but it actually works really well because you end up with this patient who kind of gets a really individualized center uh, like they're the center of care approach and we can troubleshoot and see if one or both of us can fit their needs or if we would want to refer out. And so I'll do a lot of consultation work that way. And I, I just troubleshoot. So we're talking about evidence today, but it's funny because my, my knowledge and evidence, my knowledge of like pee hacking, for example, in research sucks. <laughs> my knowledge of research isn't that great. Even though like I spent a couple of years helping to host uh, an introduction to research massage therapist group where every month we would choose another article and break it down and talk about what makes it a good or bad article, what we would try to look for. My knowledge on that is terrible. I'm more like an evidence-based practical practitioner. And then the sports injury thing, I do a lot of, I spent five years as an EMR working with football teams and uh, volleyball teams as like their head strength and conditioning specialist and rehab guy and still do a lot of that in my practice i do a lot of splinting and taping and bracing uh every once in a while someone comes in and they might be bleeding and i kind of have to close them up and send them out to the hospital or something like that so it's a really weird mix of a practice at this point mm -hmm. so sometimes the odd i'll see someone coming with the odd dislocation or laceration or fracture and 
do some assessment and clean them up and say, okay, you should go to the doctor for this, or this looks like it might not be broken, but if you still have questions and here's my index of suspicion and here's what, and write it out for the doctor and say, here's what tests we did and here's how they presented. And so, yeah, it's a, I just have a fun career. I don't, I don't. <laughs> Massage is a fun career. You could do everything. <laughs> it's a blast. It really, really is. It is. I so. love it. This episode is brought to you by the Massage Therapist MBA. Are you feeling burned out, overworked, underpaid, and on the verge of quitting? Do you feel like you deserve more money for the quality work you provide to your clients? Have you been looking for a way to transition into self-employment and not sure how to begin? Or maybe you run a spa or salon and want more education on how to manage your employees or contractors. The Massage Therapist MBA solves all of this. Learn everything you need to know in order to successfully run your own practice and command the money that you deserve. Get details at massagetherapistmba.thinkrific.com. Let's talk about some of the things that were really important to you guys. So I asked you kind of what were the things that were, uh, what are the things that you see that we should change in massage therapy when you first signed up for the podcast and what's really important to you? And I want to kind of start with Susan. So Susan said lack of evidence of professional decision-making and how to turn that around. And then of course, evidence-based practice. So Susan, I really want you to speak to that. What do you mean by lack of evidence and professional decision-making and how can we make better professional decisions? Okay, so I want to start with some history because I think this is really what we need to look back on. So where did all this come from? <clears throat> evidence informed practice actually started with evidence-based medicine in the 1990s. Um, I think it's uh, Richard Sackett started it. And then it moved from uh, allopathic medicine into nursing. And they realized, you know, we're not going to base our decisions because we're more holistic in our approach. So we're going to change it to evidence-based uh, practice instead of evidence-based medicine. And then it trickled down into complement integrative healthcare providers. And we go, you know, evidence is an important piece, but, but it should not, we should not be basing our decisions on it, kind of like to Robert's um, comment. So we, we change it to evidence-informed practice. And really, there's three key pieces to it. Definitely it is the evidence and you wanna to try to base your decisions on high quality evidence. But again, sometimes it doesn't exist or like cupping therapy was a great example. We just now started to get some evidence on it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't use it. It, it doesn't mean sometimes it's just the research community hasn't caught, caught up with it with the kind of questions that we should be asking to inform our practice. The second piece is clinical or practitioner expertise. Obviously, if the evidence says you should do something, but you're not skilled in it, or you're not comfortable doing it, then you shouldn't be doing it. And the third most important piece is uh, the patient or the client preference. For example, if the evidence says you should be applying deep pressure, <clears throat> but your client doesn't want it, you're not going to apply it. So you do have to be practical in your approaches. So it is, I like to use the image of a stool with three legs, all of them equally important. Um, in order to hold up uh, that stand of what is best for the client. So it actually comes from, uh, in, in the United States, I know we're dealing with two Canadians, but uh, the whole thing comes from Congress who said, we have the National Institutes of Health and National Institutes of Health is about 37, 38 different centers or agencies or councils. And one of those is, I've got it right here, is you, you've heard of CAM, CAM uh, stands for the National Center of Complementary and Alternative Medicine. I and mean, that was in 1998. 
And we realized during the opioid crisis that, uh, that we need to be able to change that concept of alternative medicine because an, an allopathic physician will not refer to someone who practices alternative medicine. So the wisdom of Congress, you wanna call it that, retired the term, I think this is so fascinating, with language changing, they retired the term in 2014 because with the opioid crisis, we realized that we needed more non-pharmacologic interventions. That's what they use in, in, in uh, research. They use the word treatment, they use the term intervention. And, um, and massage is one of the most effective things non-pharmacologically for, for pain. And we, we can get results in one session, in, in a 20 minute massage, according to the research. But practitioners, we still have a problem with, with the name. So Congress changed it to the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Healthcare. That's, there's a difference in that, that terminology. So uh, then basically the physician says, you wanna play in our arena, play by our rules. And basically you have to be able to make de decisions on evidence. And so this is one of the things that I'm really, really advocating for. And there's a, quite a bit of evidence out there on quite a few topics. And really there's just been a huge uh, explosion in research. You can find researchers that on any topic right now. And um, taping, cupping, ISTEM, stretching, heat, cold, you know, all kinds of stuff. And of course, massage. And so how do, we, how do we change that? First of all, we have to overcome some of our barriers. You have to get research literate, talking about Robert's comment, we have to be able to teach what it is, the levels of evidence, how to use them, how to apply them, how to search for it, how to read it, and kind of become interested in it because it is basically uh, having a question and then answering that question in the best way that you know how. And from different angles, you have qualitative research, quantitative research, and they approach the uh, question very differently. And, and I do believe in all research, all research is important even small studies, even case reports, and, ex and research doesn't have an expiration date. People say, oh, it only has to be five years old, 10 years old, that's, that's garbage. Uh, it, even old studies actually really do inform what we, uh, which shapes what we know today. So how do we change that? I, I use an acronym called PICO. There's different takes on it, or some people say PICOT, but uh, I use PICO, P-I-C-O. P stands for population, our problem, our patient. It can stand for a couple different things. The I stands for the intervention. Yes, you can research more than one, but I'm assuming because you're an audience of massage therapy, you might want to research massage or manual therapy, depending on uh, what journal you're looking in. Um, the, the C stands for comparison. It's not always used, but if you're kind of trying to decide, do I want to use massage or reflexology or heat or cold or stretching or exercise, a comparison helps you make that decision. And O stands for outcome. What is the outcome of interest? Are you looking for pain reduction? Are you looking for uh, improved function? Are you looking for decreased, decreased depression? What is the clinical outcome? And there's really two main kinds of researches, research approaches. One is called basic research, which is looking at mechanisms of action. Uh, it's looking at things like what it does to the brain, what it does to a skin receptor, what it does to fascia, what it does, um, to neurotransmitters, hormones, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin. But what clinical research is really the stuff we're most interested in, and what does that do for my client? What does it do for my patient? Is it gonna reduce pain? That's different than mechanisms of action. Can you kind of hear that? Mm -hmm. Or what is it gonna to do to improve my quality of life? Or what is it gonna to do to help me sleep better? 
Robert just saying, uh, just those kind of things. So there's two basic kind of approaches. You have to come up with a clinical question first, and then that clinical question that you derive from PICO is used to, uh, to develop or ascertain, I love that word ascertain, ascertain keywords that you use for internet searches. And then you we teach students, our therapists really, to uh, what is what's a good credible source. Obviously blogs are typically not, uh, or .coms typically are not, com stands for commerce, biz, not, not good sources of information, they stand for uh, business. We want to look for EDU, education, gov, government, or uh, org, uh, nonprofit organization. Those tend to be the best sources. And, um, and then how to apply that information that you're gathering, synthesize it and put it, I, I like to use tables or tabular format, and then come up with the approach. Because I really encourage therapists, don't just read the abstracts. That's not where the juice is. Read the methods section. That will tell you what they did, how often they applied it, how long, sometimes even gives you things like the kind of lotion they use, the position of the patient, the room lighting, I kid you not. Sometimes these studies give you that much detail uh, uh, and the pressure that they use and you, you can use pressure scales. So it's, it's fascinating once you get involved in it, it gets, I mean, you, it takes you down a rabbit hole and I'm just, I want to create a, a research community a, the culture of research in our profession. And I thank you, Stephanie, for uh, helping us, Jamie and Robert and I, to facilitate that process. Absolutely. So, so Jamie and Robert, um, is your approach, would you say that it's similar to the same type of approach that Susan's talking about here when it comes to research? <laughs> uh, I, I don't necessarily look at the, the PICO uh, scale or the, the uh, that is the outcomes, but I, you know, when we look at evidence-based practice compared to evidence-informed, I agree that as massage therapists, we're far closer to being evidence-informed than we are evidence-based. But if we look at the research methods in evidence-based, <clears throat> I think those are what we should be looking at to try to apply as evidence forms. So, you know, looking at case studies, and, and Susan made a great point that doesn't matter how small it is, we need case studies in order to build up to see a systematic review. And, you know, systematic reviews are sort of the, the top of the hierarchy that we can look at when that's where they've, they've looked at like hundreds of papers to figure out what's the best things from all those. So, um, so that's sort of how I look at it is those are sort of the first things that I'm going to look at and then I'll start to pare down from there. Uh, so especially if I'm writing a blog post or something like that, that's where I'm looking to say, okay, what, what's the best evidence of how we're treating a population or how we're doing a certain thing? So those are sort of the first things that I'll look at. And then I'll start to pare down from there uh, because I want to get the best information. And once I have that, what I think is the best information, then I look at how I can apply that to the people who are coming to see me. Um, and Susan made several great points that, you know, when that person's coming in to see you, uh, if the evidence says that this is the way you treatment, treat them, but the person hates that, then don't do that. You know, cater it according to them. And that's where the whole term of patient-centered care comes from, right? Uh, we're doing what's best for them. And it should be a collaborative approach with that person, not just, you know, the evidence told us this, but if the person hates that, then don't do it. Collaborate with them. Come to a decision-making process with them on, on how that care is going to go. Yeah. How about you, Rob? You have any thoughts on that? 
So which, in which way, do you want me to answer the question you just asked Jamie as well, or other thoughts? Um, yeah, well, you know, any thoughts, but basically the same thing, like what's your approach to research and massage therapy? Okay. Um, if you think of the way Susan's discussing it, it's very science, like a scientist, correct? I'm more like an engineer. I don't, I don't give a fuck about the research like that. I mean, I care about the outcome. I care about trying to be accurate in what I tell people. Um, but basically, I have to do a CCF plan, right? Um, conceivable clusterfuck planning. <laughs> Think about it. Really wrap your head around it. You treat, right? You treat hands-on. You treat patients right now. Yeah, Susan, yeah. you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Jamie, I'm, you? I'm a practicing yeah. practitioner. But uh, okay. Robert, the, the method section is the engineering piece. Let me finish wanna... this. Yeah, just bear, bear with me. Hear me out here. because <laughs> I, I, I have an autistic brain, so I have my own thought process on this. And it's just, it's, it is inflexible, but I'm try, I've been trying to make it <laughs> adaptable, if that makes sense. It's, we have to have CCF planning for all of our patients. I'm not a researcher. And there does have to be a definitive difference in approach when we talk about engineering versus science. You speak to any theoretical physicist versus any mechanical engineer. And even though they use a lot of the same numbers and same formula, their approach is vastly different. If you talk to an engineer in three-dimensional trilateration for GPS systems versus a physicist in three-dimensional trilateration and relativism for GPS systems. Same stuff, vastly different approaches. And so I tend to think myself more like an engineer like that. My CCF planning, my conceivable clusterfuck planning, as I imagine to be the same as all of ours, it's just my own words. We're dealing with vulnerable populations, correct? At the very least, at the very least, we have an area of expertise in what we do, and they're coming into our space where they don't have that area of expertise. Would we all agree on that? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, on average, they're coming to see us with a goal in mind. And quite often that goal is pain mitigation or functional rehabilitation. The ability to, say, hike without testicular pain or to turn your head without extreme BPPV. Would we agree on that? So we have a scalable differential in authority with hopefully respect of a fiduciary duty and a vulnerable patient relative to things that we say. So CCF planning would dictate that whatever I say needs to take into account not doing harm. It doesn't matter if I'm wrong if there's no harm. We, we fuck up for a living. Think about it. We are called a practice for a reason. Yeah, we are professional failures. Really step back and think about how often per day you're right in an assessment. Okay? If I think to, uh, I almost said yesterday, I lied to you. Uh, Friday. Friday I was working. I worked um, 10 to 8 Friday. And um. Patient, orichalgia. Do you know what orichalgia is? Testicular pain? It's in the top of my head. So orichalgia is testicular pain. And we have to assess 
for the kind of thing that might be causing that, right? Think about the list of stuff outside of MSK that could be causing that, that we have no idea. And so we formulate an index of suspicion or a clinical impression. And most likely, statistically speaking, have our head up our ass on at least some part of that. We are probably wrong about something. And what we do is we try to prove ourselves wrong over and over. And if we fail to prove ourselves wrong, we've kind of done okay, right? And so we try to fail as little as possible and we be open about that. So for me, the evidence that I'm applying in my practice means telling my patient, okay, to my knowledge, this is what the evidence states. Please bear, and like the quote I use with my patients, Please bear in mind, I could have my head up my ass. No matter how much I study, I can't know all of this. So here's what the evidence states the best of my reasoning. Here's what I think you're experiencing. Here's the term for it. I'd like you to be able to look that up yourself and round out any questions that you don't have for later. Here's my cell phone number. This is what I used to run my business. Message me if you have questions and I will do my best. And our goal is not to do harm while we try to help them out. That's the kicker. That's my bottom, bottom line is if we don't have a respect for the fact that being wrong could fuck someone up, now we failed. And that's a really like that. That's why I'm in this field at this point. After all the shitty therapists I dealt with as an EDS patient who gave me garbage, garbage approaches and ended up with me in way more pain or were just straight up predatory. Oh, you have a, what is that called again? EDS? Okay, I'll look that up. And as they look me up on their computer, you can just see like cha-ching in their eyes, right? It's like, oh, <laughs> I'm buying a new boat. No, that's, 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 that's a distinctly harmful position to be in. And so after being on the receiving end of that for, you know, a good couple decades, that's my engineering approach to evidence. I try to keep up on it as best as I can. I even run an evidence-based Facebook group so the other therapists can reach out. But I'm not going to lie to you. Probably half the time they ask a question on there, I look at it and I think, oh, shit, I got to do some reading before I try to even tackle that because I don't know yet. <laughs> and that's, that is, like, my, that's what I mean, night and day between Susan and I. I like Susan's approach. I've been a fan of Susan for about a decade now. And it's not mine. I can't do it. I don't have the, the knowledge or capacity to do what she does. So I try to tackle it my own way. And more and more, I'm learning it's more of an engineering thing. I break mm -hmm. down movement terms of range of resistance and rate. I try to find correlated things that people find meaningful. And then I try to see if we can modify those things they find meaningful. And if I find something that overlaps with something I understand elsewise about pathophysiology, I refer out. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what. what what you're talking about, Rob, is basically evidence-based practice, though, because when you look at the clinical guidelines of best MSK care, it's provide reassurance, education, movement, and some manual therapy. So that, that whole reassurance and education portion is how we talk to people, right? Yeah, and but... making sure that we're not saying things that are going to make them catastrophize and being honest with them and giving, giving them the best answer that we have at the time. Yeah, but what I mean is the focus is... For a lot of people, they, and this is, this is a self-gatekeeping thing I'm seeing with a lot of therapists, and you probably both run into this with the people you educate. Um, 
they often call it crossing the chasm, which I hate. It makes it sound like this big, robust, um, over the Grand Canyon. dramatic thing. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You're going over the Grand Canyon. Oh, it's so, I hate that term so much. It, it almost furthers the self gatekeeping, but you get these people like, oh, well, I could never do all this. I could, I can't. Well, I, I don't know it. I try my best, but I definitely don't know it. I can sure as hell try to apply it as long as I have that base philosophy in place. Yeah. Susan, is there a place where a therapist can really go to learn about research literacy? Like how do they find out more about this and how to actually implement it into their practice? Well, I want to go back to a couple of comments that were made. I think were pretty fascinating to me is I honestly, you start talking about research and you lose a lot of people. So I, when I'm teaching it at a CE class or I'm teaching it in the classroom, I use a storytelling approach, a narrative approach. So people ask a question and a great, great question is, uh, what do you think the number one cause, according to research, is when therapists injure themselves? Massage, massage, self-induced injury. What's the number one cause? Because we should be looking at the evidence so we can inform uh, our practitioners how to avoid it. So guess what it is? Repetitive motion? Nope. <laughs> Um, this has been multiple studies by the somebody way. else's guess i guess burnout but oh number two okay very good keep going <laughs> do you have any ideas robert the only way i tend to think of that is you know that concept there's no bad exercise there's just the one you're not prepped for that kind of idea is you're smart is the idea that we haven't really prepared ourselves for the physical needs of our job um my partner has a better way of saying it she does it really well she has one sentence that puts it cleanly and i can't remember so i'm going to ask her in a second but i want to hear what you're going to say first well actually you guys are very smart so uh physical exhaustion is number one the number one uh correlate is what it's called uh to injury the number two is mental exhaustion so going back so both you guys really hit the high marks so, so with that information, how can we apply it? So when we're teaching therapists how to not injure themselves, body mechanics is important, but only to the degree that it's making you physically tired. We also have to be concerned about uh, compassion fatigue, uh, which I say use empathy, not sympathy. That's a whole nother conversation. There's some fantastic research on empathy. And again, it's, um, it is, to, I do think it is the engineering approach because um, you're, you're looking at from nuts and bolts when you look at the method section. So what did they do to create this? And how did they think about this problem? Because with, with research, there's more than one approach. There is the qualitative approach, which you would probably like because uh, it is very analytical, which is not my forte. I'm more of a qualitative researcher, which means I'm gonna find out what, what are the stories behind the questions. So what is your perception of massage? Why did you do this? So it's more the psychology of massage therapy, which is again, the qualitative approaches. And that's what my research did. So I, I, uh, I did a qualitative approach, which I collected stories and then I looked for themes between the stories. So to me, to get people interested and involved is to, to, to think about some of the questions. You talked about safety a minute ago and not hurting our clients. Um, one of the things that we're doing, according to research, you look at the case reports, is uh, as, a, as a group, we are doing a lot of anterior neck massage that's harming our patients. Uh, there's things like spinal nerve neuropathy, 
subspinal accessory neuropathy, a brachial plexus injury, carotid artery section that are coming from people working on scalings and SCM. So that, that's evidence. That's we should, and that's obviously hurting our patients. So in our clients, so we should be really speaking loudly against that because we are an evidence-based uh, community, massage community, and we are concerned about good outcomes, but not at the cost of injuring our patients. And so um, there's just a lot that we could be doing and should be doing with evidence. But I think that it, it becomes, what are you curious about? And go from there. I know one of the things that I feel like I have some, some concerns about, um, that I've seen recently, like, um, I, I'll be like scrolling through TikTok, and I see a lot of people with chronic pain conditions and they're really upset about, uh, the no pain act, for example, coming out saying that, that, I don't know if you guys know about this, but it's, no. it's in Congress, uh, AMT has been working for it, working on it for a long time. And, I believe that there are people in chronic pain that are like massage therapy cannot help me. I've had it. I've tried it. It doesn't work. It makes me feel worse. It doesn't make me feel better. And now they're talking about using it as a first line of treatment after surgery or after something going on in the hospital. Uh, how is this actually going to help me? And people are not some some people are not seeing the benefits uh, over their pain medications or their opioid medications that they've been taking for years. So, I mean, I guess I kind of see that as a little bit of a concern that's, that's coming up right now, at least for us in the States. Um, what would you guys say to something like that? I mean, I think massage therapy, there's a lot of evidence that shows that we can help things lower back pain and all this stuff. But then at the same time, when I think in my mind, like, okay, in massage school, they told me not to work on a patient right after surgery, right? They said not to do that. Like we should wait a certain period of time before we can do that, uh, and make sure that we're asking the right questions. So what do you guys think about all of that? That's a great question because we have so many studies that I cite that you are getting massage, the patients are getting massage in the recovery rooms. So again, when can you massage after surgery? The question is, answer is the same day. Now you have to do a couple of different things to make sure they're safe. Number one, they have to have a good prognosis. Number two, they have their uh, vital signs have got to be within normal limits. They have to be conscious, no pun intended. They have to be comfortable. And one of the interesting things about, uh, about this is we used to say, this is like 10 years ago, to not massage the lower extremities because of increased blood clot risk. We used to say 10 days. That was the standard 10 years ago. But then a study came out in the UK that said, you know, the, uh, the blood clot risk is actually longer than we expected. And it's 12 weeks now. So again, you take that, again, going back to evidence-informed practice, you take that, that study and you apply it to your practice. So what I recommend is post-surgery, they can receive a back massage, neck massage. Of course, you have to position it for comfort because of the drain tubes and, and the uh, incisions and stuff, but just avoid massage to the lower extremities. Lower extremities is defined as thigh and leg. So anything hit below uh, for 12 weeks. So again, that's a great, conversation to have, what are the practice guidelines and how did evidence inform that practice guideline? And you have a defendable approach. But also going back to your question, Stephanie, what populations are they saying it's not helping with? Because I've got a 
ton of research that says it helps with a lot of populations. So it might be a population specific question. Yeah, I'm sure it probably does. I think a lot of the people that I've seen talk about it are people with things like uh, fibromyalgia, you know, just like that all over kind of chronic pain condition uh, where, you know, pressure seems to make it worse and it doesn't really help very much. So I see a lot of people talking about that type of thing. Yeah. I think there's a whole lot to unpack there because, <laughs> you know, the, like, is it population-based or is it person-based where there's certain people that would just prefer to take an opioid over getting a treatment? Totally might be the case. I have no right? idea. Like there's, and I mean, there's evidence out there that even for fibromyalgia, that massage can be effective. Um, there's lots of, I mean, a good friend of mine here in British Columbia, who's a, who's a pain advocate because he lives with persistent pain repeatedly talks about he loves going and getting that delicious feeling massage because it helps so are are the people who are saying that or is it because they don't even want to do anything they'd rather just take a pill that fixes that pain so i i think there's more to unpack there than than just making a blanket statement about it well definitely whatever congress is trying to do yeah, definitely a strong possibility. Uh, fibromyalgia pain relief was the first continuing education class I ever took. <laughs> and I just took it because I that's I, that's what I thought I was dealing with at the time. And massage therapy changed my life, like literally changed my life. I, I was out of pain within probably the first year of practicing massage and receiving massage often. Wow. So, you know, uh, now I don't, believe that I have fibromyalgia anymore or not even sure if I ever really experienced it because it was so easy to get, to get rid of it and not have that type of continual pain anymore. So. That's awesome. Well, it is, a, you, you know, it's a fibromyalgia is part of that is a pain hypersensitivity. And, um, and I think it's really cool that you were able to combat that with a pressure therapy, mm-hmm. pressure yeah. receptive therapy. Absolutely worked for me. So, um, yeah, but I guess that's kind of one of my concerns where I'm seeing like, I, is it the, I do wonder, like, is it the addiction speaking when people say this doesn't work or it can't work, you know? And, I, and, I, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to say that it's people who have an addiction. I just mean, it's people who maybe just want the easier solution that it's, that it's easier to take something than it is to go and be more active in your care. Mm-hmm. And I see so Rob, Rob's disagreeing with me right now. I can see the look on his face, but I just, I just mean looking at that specific thing, there's probably a lot more to unpack there than just saying it's one simple thing. And it is a, a somewhat time consuming therapy. Some people are impatient, Yeah, you know, or, or have touch issues. I mean, going yep. back to Jamie's comment, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's probably but a whole I, nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's like one thing that, that I'm starting to look at now is I think we have to start, and this is strictly just my opinion, but the research backs me up a little bit on it, is that I think we have to stop thinking that the primary reason people come to see us is strictly for pain. Because I think the reason that they're coming to us is to prevent disability. Um, and you know, like we're very fortunate here in British Columbia because we have like nurses and paramedics get unlimited massage as part of their extended health benefits. So you, you could build a practice on nurses and paramedics because some of them will come in once a week and it's 100% paid for. Um, and when I look at that quite often, it might not be that that person's injured. They might be coming in just, just get a relaxation massage, 
but they're still doing it to prevent disability because they're doing it so that they can continue doing their job. They're doing it so they can go home and be able to hang out with the kids. And maybe they just need that hour to themselves. They're still doing those things as part of a maintenance thing to keep them going at the things that they love to do or the things that are important to them. And I think we have to start changing it to being less about pain because people can still be in pain, but have a fully functional life and prevent disability and go do those things. I think the bigger reason that we're helping them is to get them to keep doing those things that they love. Yeah, and research supports that. Uh, in the study recently, pain reduction was, or pain management, what they called it. Number two, guess what yeah. number one was? Preventing disability. Well, they called it quality of life, but it's, we're saying so, the same thing, just using yeah, a different yeah. term. Yeah. Uh, quality of life, uh, wellness, if you want to call it that, uh, self-care, stress reduction. I mean, there's all kind of tags we can hang on it. And again, we, we would not be far from, yeah. from what we're saying, but, um, yeah. but it is the relationship with the practitioner, which, uh, which is key, key important, key important. In fact, they had one study that I looked at that said that, you know, this is what massage did during the study, but the effects were greater when the client had the same, uh, same therapist. Yeah. That's just fascinating to me. Yeah. So you think so that's you just because the continuity of care, you had better results. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that's because uh, the, the person's body responds better to something that they're comfortable and familiar with, you know, Ooh. the same person? You should be a researcher. I know, I mean, right? That's a good question. Think, <laughs> that's a great question. I think it's um, the therapeutic relationship. That makes sense. It's the, it, I mean, quite simply, if a person comes in and they just like you, you're going to have better outcomes than if they don't like you. That's true. Yeah. Um, I tell a story when we, when we teach courses, I, I have a, a person who comes to see me who was, their hip was completely seized up. They were limping coming in. And when I had the conversation with them, they said, yeah, well, I went to my physio, uh, early, like yesterday. And they told me that they have nightmares about me coming in because they don't think that they can help me. Oh, wow. Right. So, and I was like, don't ever go back to that person again, because obviously the therapeutic relationship is not good. So you're not going to have good outcomes and did some of the stuff that we've been talking about, some education, reassurance, some movement. And the person went home, messaged me and they're like, I just took the dog for a walk. And it's like, I, nothing happened ever with my hip. And I'm like, yeah, cause somebody just told you that they have nightmares about you when you come in. So that's a really bad therapeutic relationship. So you're not going to have good outcomes there. Yeah. I think we are in the people business. We are in the experience business. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So Rob, I was listening to a podcast that you were on this morning <laughs> and I was kind of fascinated. wanted to ask you about it. So, uh, this is when I believe it was, uh, with Nick don't know the last name. I think it was just Ng. two. Yes. Nick okay. Ng. And you were talking yeah, about Jamie's best friends. You probably just made Jamie all switchy. Okay. <laughs> Jamie was like, oh, Nick. I was listening to that podcast Bye, this buddy. morning and you were talking about changing people's minds on social media about the, you know, you were talking about that, uh, crossing the, crossing the chasm type thing, um, and how we actually begin to start changing people's minds and get them more thinking towards an evidence-based or an evidence-informed type practice. Um, we were talking, uh, I don't know, but I found the whole thing interesting. I, I was actually wrote, uh, did a video just like yesterday or the day before about moving from like debate into dialogue in our community. And so it resonated with me when I read it, because I feel like we see so much debate between practitioners. Um, 
and, and we, it's constantly creating a divide between us. And I am looking at like, how can we bridge this divide? How can we bring uh, these mindsets together a little bit? And, you know, my one thought is we give the holistic, the more holistic, more spiritual based practitioners, more knowledge. Uh, I think that's one way that we can start to bridge that a little bit. But what are your thoughts on that? Because I think that you have had a lot of really great things to say on that podcast. Hmm. Um, I have a lot that I'm unpacking from what we like, what was just being talked about too. So <laughs> I'm trying, normally when I'm on these, I talk a lot more, but I'm trying not to talk much today. So let me try to reshift my brain. I got a lot of mental horsepower, but not a lot of mental agility. Um, yeah, it's like a freight train. A lot of mass doesn't corner well. So talking with Nick, um, you may have recalled, I, I actually talked about the idea of doing harm again. That's mm -hmm. a, a common theme. I, I believe I talked about opportunity cost of care, correct? Yes. So we have to look at a simple paradigm shift, a very simple one. Again, evidence-based care isn't about evidence. There is a quote I remember from CSI, weirdly enough. This guy, this guy says to uh, one of the characters, he goes, oh, you just, you just have all the answers, don't you? He said, actually, I prefer the questions. And that stuck with me because that's the simple paradigm shift. What if I'm wrong, right? Now, okay, okay, okay. So we talk about catastrophizing, sure. We talk about that. What if we talk about opportunity cost in terms of, I have a colleague, she's an acupuncturist, and she asked me to refer people to her. And she said, yes. And if you have any patients with these kind of issues, please let me know. And she included infertility in that. Now, if I'm offering acupuncture for someone for infertility, am I harming them? And my answer would be, fuck yes. Absolutely. And the reason for that is because, A, I'm preying on a vulnerability. And whether or not I'm following my religious, spiritual, or intellectual beliefs in doing so, it doesn't change the outcome. And whether or not it jives with them, it doesn't change the outcome. I at least need to be transparent so they can make an informed decision. By the way, we can try to treat you for your infertility, but the evidence states that I'm full of shit. So, you are now informed. And now we can do it. If the person still wants to pay you for it, at least they know. But this therapist firmly believes that she is changing your life energy and you will pop out a baby. Hallelujah. And that shit is harmful. And so when we're dealing with people who have spiritual beliefs, I don't care about increasing knowledge. Do what you want. I do care about asking questions. Ask the question, is there the possibility I can do harm? I had a therapist treat me last year and she fucking dislocated my toes. I don't oh. like dislocating my toes. It sucks. And she dislocated multiple toes because she said, oh, people love this. And she did this thing where she snapped and pulled. And it hurt for days after. And I mean, I can wiggle them and pull them back in. I can self-reduce almost any dislocation at this point. But I don't like it. I don't like having to do it, I should say. I love being able to because, yay, I'm functional. But I don't like having to. Was and she not informed of your condition? Or was yes, she? she was. And that's the kicker. So that's where me, this is where this comes full circle jerk to what people were just talking about and what I'm digesting. 
And we have to identify what we mean by massage. So when we're talking about massage, what does that mean where we are? What's in our scope? We're going to talk about fibromyalgia. We can talk about hyperalgesia. We can talk about hypoalgesia. We can talk about peripheral nerve inflammation or um, neuropraxias. Holy crap, I can't believe I forgot that word. I'm sorry. We can talk about neuropraxias. Or we can talk about central sensitization and catastrophization. We can go psychosocial or, or strictly bio. But what's in our scope? I treat a number of fibro patients right now. I, I, I don't do pressure-based massage with any of them. And with even the ones I found the deeper pressure seems to help a little bit. What do we see with fibro almost universally or to my knowledge at this point, we would consider universally. And that is a reduced capacity for adaptation to myoskeletal stressors, correct? Mm -hmm. And so I could stab my thumb into their QL, sure. Or I can have them lay on their back and I can just induce a bit of a posterior, a posterior pelvic tilt and lateral pelvic tilt with a bit of rotation to, you know, tissue approximate or strain counter strain or positional release, whatever you want to call it, and take the pelvis and the subcoastal margin, do this to them, and shorten that QL gently and let it chill out and take the pressure off the peripheral nerves and take the, take the pressure off the fascial sheaths or wh whichever, whichever tissue of choice that your bias suggests it must be. And calm shit down. And hang out with them and walk them through what I'm doing and my reasoning behind it and say, okay, this is my thought process. Now, I'd like feedback from you. I'd like you to pay attention for the next 72 hours as well and see if there's any rebound effect because that's, that, you know what that's like with, with fibro. That's huge. Mm -hmm. The pain isn't that bad. It's the debility from the pain. But then that goes to the other thing I have here. Sorry, I'm taking notes as Susan and Jamie are talking mm -hmm. to because I'm like, I want to tackle these things, but I don't want to just yeah. dominate. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> So we talk about how do we define massage, but we also have to define the reason for the massage. I did a, a two-part or a three-part video series on it a few years ago, talking about why are you here? And I, I, I'm not so good at the peopling, so I just blatantly ask. When someone comes in, I say, okay, nice to meet you. Why are you here? And it's a two-part question. Why are you here is what are you experiencing? And usually I have to redefine that form pretty fucking quick. And what do you actually hope to get from seeing me? You're here, you're paying me. We better make sure I'm not wasting your time and money. So what do you actually hope from seeing me? Oh, I heard you're a miracle worker. That's bullshit. I work no miracles, but we can try to troubleshoot. Or why are you here? I'm in pain. That's bullshit. Lots of people, I'm in pain all the time. It doesn't mean I have a poor quality of life. So what's the pain stop you from doing? If I ask you right now, would you care if you're in pain? If the pain wasn't stop you from having a great day with your kids or playing with your dog. I don't care. I'm always in pain. I don't care. Or this hurts a lot. I've had 10 years of it. Then let's see if we can try to work on ways to modify that. See if we can find something meaningful in that respect. Or to build capacity despite the pain. Or even teach you how to plan out around the pain. Like That's a I've, really good question. I've never and, been asked that question. <laughs> yeah. Why not? How many therapists did you see? And how much of a failure is that in the system? to not consider that basic question. Yeah. And so when we're talking about massage, we're talking about can massage help? What's the scope of practice? 
And is that scope of practice actually being utilized? Because massage is a glove term and it's a stupid glove term. We shouldn't even say massage again in this podcast. We should say MSK therapy because we're basically the same as any physio or chiro or osteo or AT. And I mean, I have training from all of those schools and trust me, they're all the same except, oh, I can do internal at this school or I can do adjustments at this school. I'm sorry, if your toolbox is massive and one person has a rock hammer, whereas another person has a tack hammer, you still have most of the same toolbox. You're basically the same damn thing. Mm -hmm. So how do we define how we're working with our patient? And so we can't say massage doesn't work for this person if everyone just went and stuck an elbow in their back. It's more about the therapist. So are they troubleshooting? Are they asking that question? Today's episode is also brought to you by 419 Education and Training. 419 Education and Training is a nationally accredited CEU school for certified athletic trainers and licensed massage therapists through the BOCATC and the NCBTMB. Devonna Willis facilitates a variety of massage curricula and also offers to consult on business and marketing strategies for new massage and wellness business enterprises. Her offerings are live classes, online self-paced classes, group business coaching, business and marketing templates, wellness products, and money-making marketing membership coming this June. Check out her website for more information at www.419education.com with a number four. Going back to something Susan said, because I really want to know. Okay, so blood clot risk, 10-day protocol, 12-week protocol. And treating post-op, I mean, I treat pre and post-op regularly because, again, I don't do direct techniques very often anymore like yeah sometimes i'll still do active pin and strip which is disturbingly similar to art but we can't call it that or you don't want to I'll pay still... the fifteen thousand a year for the <laughs> what a... i heard that Whoa. he actually started to acknowledge that maybe they're not breaking down scar tissue i heard that he considered it but still still hasn't recanted but that being said 10 days and 12 weeks. Now, how long was it 10 days? How long was that protocol for? Do you know it was about a decade, you said? Wait, wait, say that again. So you said there was initially, uh, we should wait 10 days post-op. Because that was the life of a platelet. That was, that was what it was based on. Yeah, but that's, that's not where I'm going. But you said the original thought was 10 days, and then it got upgraded to 12 well, weeks. Wait. Now, right. in the years intervening, in the years in between, I mean, that intervening span of time. How many people who experienced massage between 10 days and two weeks who got lower limb direct and aggressive treatment experienced blood clots? Well, I, that's a I, good question. Uh, I like, like, it. That's I like the, what you're thinking, Mr. That's Engineer. That's the practical question here, though. Right? I was thinking the same thing. That can be answered, actually, in two different ways. Uh-huh. Um, one's going to be more difficult than the other. You could go back and look at all of the case reports that had to do with uh, the correlation between a blood clot, which is really PE. And let's, let's define our terms. Uh, VTE, VTE, which is the proper term, stands for venous thromboembolism. It's an umbrella term that means DVT and PE. DVT is the condition, PE is the complication, uh, pulmonary embolism. So um, you can go back and look at case, you can pull case reports, look at the dates and say this between this date and this date, this, this many case reports were published that had to do with 
uh, PE that was related to massage. And typically it's gonna be leg massage because most DVT is below the knee, which is in the leg. Actually, according to research, most DVT is in the left leg. If you want, if you want to, again, if you're curious about this kind of stuff, there's a whole lot out there that can be answered. And, um, and so that would, now the, the other part of this, which cannot be answered easily, is if the case was litigated, which means if there was, usually if those are settled, the ones, the anterior neck massage cases I've been working on that I've talked about previously, when those were settled, those cases were closed. You, you cannot access those cases where massage caused injury. So, um, and, and again, how, if it's one, how many do you want? This is, this is the argument I like to make when people say, well, what are the numbers really, Susan? One is too many. You know what I mean? And, and why not have, you're, you're, do, you're having safe practice guidelines protect our patient. They may receive benefit, but at what cost? If it could cause an injury, and this is usually what happens when you go to a legal case is, uh, let's say you did a leg massage and it caused a PE, pulmonary embolism, and, and the client survived and sued you. Let's just pretend. When you go to when you go get deposed, the attorney's going to ask you, are there other things you could have done that, that would have been safer for the patient? They could have caused the same outcome, but didn't have to risk the harm of a, P, of a PE. And that's when you have to really look at yourself and say, you know, I really should have done this other thing, this pelvic tilt you just mentioned, or I don't know, whatever, whatever it is in your toolbox, your vast toolbox, to not, not cause harm. So we have enough evidence to say, we know this is harmful to our patients or potentially harmful to our patients. Don't do it. But again, like, what were the numbers? Uh, well, I could say at least seven, mm -hmm. but again, I don't. I need to know the time frame. So I, I, I have in my books mm -hmm. at least seven documented case uh, cases of of PE caused by leg massage during that window, mm -hmm. and you know, and you can screen for it. And that's the thing: you can either screen for it, you know how to look for DVT. I'm sure that you're taught that in massage school. And if it, you test positive for it. <clears throat> don't do it. <clears throat> Can't tell you about this other study. It was on cancer patients because um, they, they said the safety and efficacy of massage therapy uh, due to uh, DVT factors. <clears throat> when you have cancer, you have an increased risk of DVT. Yes, you all agree this? Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, what the introduction of the study said was, we know that massage uh, therapists are taught, and they didn't cite my book, which I was very delighted to hear, that, um, that DVT is considered an absolute contraindication as taught in massage schools. And the um, research scientist says, we're going to buck that practice standard because we have a whole lot of cancer patients who are asking for massage. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna apply a simple intervention, which is we're gonna uh, teach our massage therapists to screen for DVT, which, which is to look for a unilateral SHARP, Swelling, heat, a loss of function, pain, and redness. You guys know what you've heard of sharp. And we um, use that, we're just going I, to avoid yeah, that yeah. extremity, the affected lower extremity, but we're still going to do the massage. We're just going to treat it as a local contraindication. And guess how many adverse events? And then again, we, I, again, back to words, there's a difference between a side effect and an adverse event. Mm -hmm. How many adverse events were reported? None. So how do you apply this research? If you say, 
you have a client with cancer or any kind of high-risk DVT, including uh, hormone replacement therapy, geriatrics, post-surgery, screen for DVT okay. and treat it as a local contraindication, and then you can practice safely. So there are things you can do with the knowledge, going back to someone's comment about knowledge is really the key here. Um, but we need, we need more evidence-based skills. And there's a lot out there. You just have to put them together and teach them. So I hope that um, gives you some um, encouragement. And that's the thing I love about evidence. It reduces the uh, barriers between us and patients. All the things we thought we couldn't do, we can do. Mm -hmm. including massage you can massage during chemotherapy we have studies to prove it you can massage during dialysis we have the studies to prove it you know we should embracing evidence it's going to reduce the barriers between ourselves and the patients who need us who mm -hmm. need what we have to offer so this this is my big message to any listener out there use the evidence that's going to give you more confidence it's going to keep you out of the courtroom and it's going to help your patients. And, and you're going to be able to create just uh, better guidelines for applying your practice, your massage therapy or whatever it is in your toolbox. Yeah, yeah I love that. I would say uh, massage school gives us just enough to kind of like be dangerous to our, to our patients. Uh, and so having that extra step going further to really incorporate the research literacy, really incorporate how to read these studies, how to interpret them and how to actually use them in your practice. We definitely need to see more of that and more classes, because in my opinion, we just, no matter what type of practice that you have or what type of practice that you do in massage therapy, whether you're in the spa or you're in the, uh, the energetic realm or whatever, we're all operating under the same umbrella of massage therapy. And we all need to have certain things like science literacy. We all need to have research literacy. We all need to be able to understand public health, vaccines, pathology, and all this stuff. Even if you're still operating from a, a, a spiritual perspective or whatever it is, you know, it's everybody's better. got their own background, their own thing. Uh, you we know, have the same goals, right. But what? we still need to have those types of, you know, the science behind everything that we do. One thing I'm curious about, and I, I probably should have informed myself, what is the schooling like where each of you are? Like, I know Jamie's, but what is, what are, what are the standards like? How long is the program? <laughs> what are they covering? Um, this is an LA take worms, Robert Candor. <laughs> Why? What? <laughs> uh, That's a whole other podcast episode, Rob. Wait. We did a whole entire uh, thing on it, an engagement opportunity on it last year or 2020. Uh, that's uh -huh. on my YouTube channel where you can listen to uh, education in the United States and what that looks like for massage well, therapy. Well, I know in different states it's different. So, like, you're in, you're in Arizona, and mm -hmm. Susan, where are you? I'm actually uh, between two states right now. I just left New Mexico, which is 650, and back in Louisiana, which is 500. Okay. Uh, but I do a lot with education. I, I'm in. The, I'm on the compact uh, group uh -huh. right now. You guys have heard of the compact? No. No. Okay. So in the United States, they are developing an interstate compact, which will work like a driver's license. It's called the privilege to practice, which yeah. means that if you qualify, there'll be there'll be reciprocity, which means you can practice in one, have a license in one state and practice in another state. Okay. Um, and they're shooting for 600. I think it's 600. Maybe it's 650 as the minimum for getting this compact license. Okay. Um, 
but but again, I believe, and I know this is a hot topic. I'm going to be drug under the bus on this one. I know, but I believe it's quality, not quantity, in education, because I can do a hell of a job in 500 hours. I mean, a hell of a job. I um, I like mine was 3,000. Jamie's oh, was I know, two. I know. I mean, I know and, Canadians are up. 3,000 a shit is still 3,000 a shit. That's the well, thing. I mean, okay. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't okay. all shit, but, uh, but it wasn't all but great, but I wouldn't think you could do enough for 500 at all. Entry level and C classes, and I think yeah. that's, now that I've worked in both states, that's really what decreased hours are. Yeah, I, just, I was really gosh. curious. I was really I, curious thinking about it. What are your guys' continuing education requirements like? How is that oh. different from us? Because I yeah. know you get so much more education in the beginning. Then what does that look like as far as CE goes for you? So well, requirements versus actual is the question, right? Like I got, uh, at one point we had this thing where we had, I think we had to get, Marcy, do you remember, was it 30 or 60 CEUs per cycle? I can't remember anymore. So we had to have 30 per CEU cycle and CEU cycle is three years and I had over a thousand. So over the three years, I did about 600 hours of research on impact biomechanics at a gymnastics club doing high-speed filming and and push off punching and stemming research so it's it was a very low standard like 2,000 hours in three years is not hard to hit at all 60 hours in three years is a bloody cakewalk um so our our ce standards are shite they've changed in ontario now something called strive where every year what you're supposed to do is do a self-assessment on our college's website saying where you feel you're strong, where you feel you're weak. Um, my science knowledge is not very good. My evidence knowledge is not very good. My anatomy knowledge and physiology knowledge is fairly good. My path knowledge is good. And so I fixated a lot more on, okay, I need to pick up my neuro. My neuro sucks. Uh, I need to pick up my uh, research literacy, that sucks. Interpersonal, I'm not the greatest at that. I probably swear more than I should. And so I had those as my goals. It's very nebulous, however. It's not, again, the bottom line I want to see is therapists knowing to ask a simply tough question. Like, like we're talking about DVT, okay? <clears throat> DVT in the calf. How stupidly hard is it to miss that? Come on. That is the thing the feels like a rock. Do a good so history. Look at radiating it. Yeah. off of it. Like, no, even if you miss the history, there's a big red chunk of meat in front of you <laughs> that hates to be touched no matter what you do. And you go, oh, I'm just gonna shred it out. Try not to cry too much on my sheets. It's really frustrating getting the tears names out. No, stop. And stuff like that. Like. That's some Mickey Mouse shit. And so <laughs> that's the kind of thing where I'm like, I want to see people asking those questions. I'd like to see our con ed really fixating on, okay, do you know how to ask if you're wrong? And it's not as easy as am I wrong? Am I wrong? It's, it's having a thought process in place that hits some checks and balances, so to speak, that says, oh, are there some things that I don't know here that might be an issue? Is there a way my patient can clarify for me? Is there a way I can establish a circle of care with other practitioners that rounds me out? And I'd like to see that 
a lot mm-hmm. more. And that is not in our CE. That is not a, 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 a strictly stated or articulated thing. And I really want it to be because, like I said, I've been burned by that a number of times. And it sucks. Um, Jamie, I'm burned sorry. by that by people with how many hours of education? That's, that's my whole point. Well, that's, well the, and- that's what I mean. It's, not, it's, it's about the critical thinking at this point. And I'm sorry, I will, I will disagree with you until the cows come home. 500 is not enough. It needs to be at least a grand. Strictly speaking, it does. And that is quality education. Well, and I will tell you, but, again, this is, this is where it gets interesting. Most of the cases I work on yeah. um, that where, where, where uh, injury has been confirmed by a therapist yeah. is with therapists with the most hours. Now, here's a question. Because they get overconfident. What's the scope again? Because like well, our okay, scope so is including scope a lot practice. of Remax. Sorry. Well, that's the thing. Okay, so here's the thing. again, can of worms. Robert, you're famous for opening the can of worms. Mm-hmm. There is a difference between scope of practice and standard of care. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anterior neck massage is within our scope of practice, but it's not within the standard of care. And when people get sued, three things have to happen. Number one, you have to establish the standard of care. Mm-hmm. Two, you have to prove that the Therapists breached or provided substandard care. And the third thing you have to do is you have to prove that that breach caused the injury. Mm-hmm. So, so basically soft tissue, okay, so how do you define massage? Going back to your question, that's a great question. So um, what, how I define massage, and again, I define massage, I know, according to the research, because every research study has to define their terms. They have to give what's called conceptual definitions and operational definitions. Operational definitions is the engineering dream because it tells you how they figure things out. The mm-hmm. conceptual definitions is how do you define manualphatic drainage or, or myofascial release? That's a fun one. Or uh, massage therapy. Talk about opening a can of worms. I know, but <laughs> if you look at the research studies, you will find the definitions and there's some great definitions in there. Blew, blew my mind. Um, definite, uh, the research, according to research, the definition of massage is the manipulation of soft tissue using compression and decompression for therapeutic, palliative, and self-care or wellness purposes, period. That's the way it's defined. Even stretching is considered a decompression or traction a decompression. So really all the massage techniques can be plugged into that definition pretty, pretty well. Um, again, standard of care is like, uh, is when there's been like endangerment sites, very well established. It's in the textbooks, it's on the content outlines for licensing exams, it's on the content outlines of uh, certifications exam. It's, you don't go to massage school without knowing what the endangerment sites are. If you massage in an endangerment site, you are willfully endangering the client. And if that, if that causes injury, you're going to be sued and you're going to be liable for those injuries. So uh, this, this is why it's really, really important to know, like you said, know your, not only your scope of practice, but also your standards of care. The reason I ask about scope of practice, though, is, okay, Jamie, you use exercise in your practice a lot? Yeah, yeah I do, too. Do you do, uh, do you do telehealth? You are not allowed. In, uh, our college won't allow. Okay, so I do. I'd love to do it. But... I do a good deal of telehealth as well. Um, I do a lot of exercise-based rehab. I do a lot of post-op and pre-op stuff. Um, so we need at least a couple grand an hour to say, okay, here are splinting techniques, and here's what the evidence shows on those. Here are bracing techniques. Here's how you use a KED for us. 
Like we were trained in school to use a ked. I don't know that other schools would often do that. And so that was included. And yeah, if you have a larger scope of practice, you need more time to cover that effectively. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Yeah. We had bullshit. We had talking about breaking down fascia. We had talking about resetting scar tissue and real, sorry, realigning scar tissue. Did you guys do that? Oh, you're supposed to strip it down and do these breakdown techniques, but then you're supposed to flush it in this direction. Did you guys cover that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's, that's a good one, no right? evidence for that, though. I mean, holy crap, because <laughs> no. No apparently we are made of butterfly wings and a fucking prayer or something, because that's yeah. going to realign this dense collagen yeah. protein? Okay. <laughs> but we were taught that. Yes, we had our share of BS as well. But your scope of practice is also going to dictate how long it takes you to cover well enough because when you finish school, you don't know shit. You're supposed to finish school with enough knowledge not to kill people. Mm-hmm. Right? You're supposed to finish school with enough knowledge not to be in a courtroom on the receiving end. The giving end is okay. An expert witness is cool. But the receiving end is no bueno. And so when you finish school, it's supposed to be, okay, you've learned enough. Don't go hurt people. Keep learning, please. Well, and- therapeutic exercise is not within any scope of practice that I've seen in the United States. That's See, I disagree because it's necessary. Like, I totally, it helps so much. Yeah, I, I think I you totally guys should disagree. address that because we're kind of coming up towards like the end of our podcast. So I definitely so think sorry. that both it's okay. I definitely think that both of you guys should um, start to talk about that a little bit because we, I want to hear what you have to say. And since it's not in our scope of practice, we want to learn. <laughs> well, I, I think it is in your scope. The problem is, can we, you show stretches? We can do stretches, yes. Okay, that's but do active a, range of motion, passive range of motion. There's a difference between uh, there's a difference between like corrective exercise, like a physical therapist. A prescriptive exercise. Yes, prescriptive exercise. A physical therapist would really take that on, and we're not allowed to like, do it in our scope. We're so, literally allowed to put in our notes physical therapy. We're like, that is our scope and our scope in British Columbia is the same as physiotherapists. The only difference is we can't do needling or electrical modalities, which there's no evidence Wait, for anyway. So a, you can't do electrical? Right. No. Holy crap. Okay. No. I thought, oh, <laughs> huh. well, no, I, there's two different scopes between Ontario and BC. So I didn't realize that that was included as well. Like for yeah. us, our scope, our limits are no internal. So like I do, I see people for pelvic floor issues somewhat regularly. Um, I can't do anything internal. So I have a really good pelvic floor physio I like to refer to. She kicks ass. She's awesome. And so she rounds me out there. Uh, we can't... Why don't we get back to the exercise part? Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and Jamie, I want to hear from you because we've been quiet for a while over there. So yeah. let's have you talk I, about it. I wholeheartedly disagree that therapeutic exercise is not part of your scope. Um, and the reasons that I'll say that is, is, first of all, I think we should stop calling it therapeutic exercise. And I think we should call it therapeutic movement. Yeah. So That's as long as like you that. can do a stretch, you can do passive range of motion, you can do active range of motion. There's absolutely no reason that you can't have a person in your room, say on your table, doing yoga movements. There's absolutely no reason that you can't have them do different range of motion movements within a treatment as part of your assessment, as part of the end of treatment. And as far as like, saying that we're going to recommend therapeutic exercise that's fine if if they're saying you can't say i want you to go and do 10 deadlifts with this amount of weight and this sort of thing which to be honest with you most of the people who come to see us don't need that that's not why they're coming to see us but if you can recommend what is your favorite thing that you want to get back to doing that you're not doing right now and if they look at you and go i want to be able to pick my kids up 
if you can show them a different way to pick their kids up that lets them do it pain-free or they have a little bit of pain, but they can still do it. Or they just say, I love working in the garden. And you go, well, how long are you working in the garden? And they're like two hours. Well, why don't you go and try working in the garden for a half an hour and see how it feels? Yeah, I like that. And that's, we, I would call that self-care or uh, health messages. I think the term we're starting to use now. Right. So but is that really, in your scope then? Wait, say like, that again. Can you, can you do that? In yes, yes. Okay. So again, I like the way you guys are framing it. You guys are kind of blowing my mind now. I love it. Uh, so so it's away totally it. within your scope to do yeah. therapeutic movement. Yeah, I like and, that. I like that phrasing. Right, because like, honestly, doing therapeutic movement is not... I forget, I, I have the statement somewhere that I could probably find it if I look it up, but you're doing those things, which I think is within all of our scopes, is not the same as referring somebody to a personal trainer who needs to go build muscle. I would say, and most most statistics are made up on the spot, so I'm going to say 99% of people who are coming to see us <laughs> don't, don't need it. to go to a personal trainer. They come in because there's a certain thing that they want to get back to doing. And it can be as simple as I've got a kink in my neck and I can't turn to the left and I want to be able to shoulder check when I drive. Okay, well, let's look up how we can change that movement so that it makes shoulder checking easier. Let's see what we can change. And then when you go out to the car, why don't you just try looking over the shoulder three times until you can get into that range where it's easier to check. That's what we should be doing. That's those are the things that that we need to start doing with people, as I talked about before, to prevent disability, but to get them back to doing the things that they love. And I don't care what your scope is, you can do those things. Yeah, there's, thank you, Jamie. That was there's cool. my rant for the day. There's a concept <laughs> I use with therapists to make this less and more simple. Um, think about a discrete movement, any discrete movement. Like Stephanie, you just looked down and checked to the clock, right? You made a discrete movement. Your cervical spine went through a range of flexion, lateral flexion, and left side of rotation, assuming you're not, you're not mirrored here. And so we have a range of discrete movements in a Cartesian plane. In order to accomplish that, to move your mass in space, you had to be able to apply a minimum level of resistance through that range. And in order to do it in a timely manner, you had to do it with a certain amount of neuromuscular depolarization or a bolus of force or a moment of force in order to do that in an accelerative and decelerative manner to initiate and start movement. Everything we do like that is broken down in that for a single discrete movement. And so your Remax doesn't have to be Remax. You can be exploring those discrete movements. It hurts when I do this. Okay, I'm going to do my assessment, which includes passive and active resistance, range and resistance, right? And so I'm going to do that. Now, what if you push against that? If you can't turn that way, but if you push slightly, does that help if I do a muscle energy technique? Okay, then I want your home care to include doing that muscle energy technique. That is Remax. That is remedial exercise, but it's also movement exploration. Mm -hmm. I use that kind which, of move all the time. <laughs> which yeah. is just an isometric yeah. exercise. Yeah, and so where are we drawing the line? But I mean, you still want to learn about some of the contraindications there. You still want to learn about when that could make things worse or say someone has a neuropraxia how to change the the dosage of that how to change how long they're holding it things like that but yeah you want to like i i don't understand why that's not 
I mean, are you guys in the States just supposed to massage with the person laying still like a board? Don't move, because if you move, it's out of scope of practice. Holy shit, you spoke. What a problem. Don't ever do that again. Your TMJ will flare up. No. No. And so, and think, yeah, if, if they're moving, then they're moving, then they're moving, you know? Mm-hmm. I think, And I think there's a way bigger picture to look at here. And I think mm-hmm. it kind of brings our everything we've been talking about back to the same thing is when we look at massage therapy as a title, I totally agree with Rob that we should be called manual therapists or MSK therapists uh, because going and getting a massage shouldn't just be a strictly passive treatment mm. where, where the person is just laying on the table and just receiving passive treatment. We should be, my, my newest thing is that we should be engaging with people. We should be engaged in education with them. We should be, have an engaging treatment with them and we should engage in movement with them. Mm-hmm. And the things that we talked about at the start are like, what are the big things that are, that are causing an issue for the therapist? Mm-hmm. It was physical burnout and mental burnout. Mm-hmm. So how do we prevent those things? Get the patient to do more of the work. If you get the patient moving, guess how much less physical task that is on your body? And not only that, all of the research shows us, all of the, all the research shows us, sorry, Susan. No, I'm just going to support what you were saying and all the research, you know, the biopsychosocial model, the nerve matrix model, the the neural reprogramming, neuroplasticity, all of that's really where even PT is going right now. Yeah. And, and the, the, the beauty thing is all of the research shows us that we are likely to have better outcomes if we have the people moving more. Yeah. In fact, when we look at that evidence-based hierarchy of reassurance, education, movement, and some manual therapy, manual therapy is at the bottom. I All the other things little, are more important. I do want to be a little pedantic, though. Assuming their no, goal is not just you. To, I know. <laughs> Assuming their goal isn't just to come in, lay down, and you know, take some them time while they feel good. 100%. I do have patients like that, and it is a pretty squishy feeling when you have a patient walk out and be like, "Thank you so 100%. much. I needed that," and you're like, "Yeah." Have a great week. Kind and of I talk know. about I talk about that too. Like it might be yeah. that that person needs to come in and get a break from the kids, get a break from the family, get a break from life, get a break <laughs> from work, and that's their hour of just my yeah. chill time. And that 100 totally acceptable to just get a passive treatment in cases like that. But where there's actually an issue going on with the person, and we're trying to to help with pain or prevent disability or rehab something, yeah. we should be incorporating movement into everything, and it's in all of our scope. Yeah, that's wonderful. And that is the definition of evidence-based practice. It's the expertise, it's the patient preferences, and then it's evidence. Perfect. Yeah, Jamie, I love, I love the way that you've kind of reframed this whole thing. And I think maybe that's what we need to do for the future. Maybe we will be able to incorporate more movement and have that be more accepted in our scope of practice in the United States. If we can bring that in a using some different language and just should, kind of reframing that conversation. So you should yeah. invite Jamie down for some of those, uh, some of those, uh, I'd love to come on that. We are inviting Jamie yeah. down. Absolutely. Awesome. <laughs> yes. Well, I'd love to come down. I, and honestly, I think, I think it just needs to be reframed and we mm-hmm. can leave therapeutic exercise to physios and that if you want totally, but if we just make it therapeutic movement, that yeah. the other thing with that is I think it makes it less daunting for the patient. Because if we're telling them you have to go home and do this exercise, it's it sounds a little bit more daunting. And the, the thing we always talk about is what's the best exercise we can give somebody? So the you, know those, 
you, you know those. Do. That's exactly right. Right. And in most cases, sorry, Rob, I don't mean to interrupt you, no but worries. in most cases, it's a therapeutic movement thing where you get them to go do something they enjoy. You want to go for a walk with your kids, but going for an hour bothers you? Well, go for 15 minutes and come back, see how that feels. Then go for a half hour and reach up to that. It's let's reframe it and make it therapeutic movements that people will enjoy. Mm -hmm. You know, those stupid little videos I shoot, those little one minute movement things. That's all those are. Those are things that I've yeah. done with patients where they were meaningful for them or they helped for reaching for a person in the backseat or or playing with their chihuahua or whatever. And they are just little movement snacks, little one minute videos. I think I filmed like 300 of those over the years now because they're just they're always just different. And that's it. They're just movement exploration. And they make such a big difference because they're so approachable and doable. And it doesn't feel like I have to wake up and do my rehab. It's okay. I'm going to see how I feel for that day. It becomes your kinetic map at the beginning of the day to see how you're, how you're responding to treatment and movement overall. And it becomes a way to manage that. And there it, it really opens up possibilities for manual therapists like that. Yeah. I love that. Um, hopefully you'll tell us where to find all those before we end this show. But one of the things that oh. I, I looked at at the beginning of my practice, uh, Ryan Hoime, uh, who does massage nerd, he had a lot of videos on how to move all the different joints. It was, and I was fascinated by these. I was like, oh, this is so cool. And I just went through every single video. I learned how every single part of the body moved while I was in school and made sure that that was integrated into what I was learning as far as my practice goes. So I've always done a lot of movement with people, even in the spa, like I've still done that, you know, that I, I feel like it's weird to just have somebody lay there and not move and not do anything. So even in those environments, I'll still pull that out, you know, and move my, move my people around. Um, One of my favorite is a uh, Corey, a Blankenstaff out of, mm. uh, of Oregon. He, yes. He's yes. Vancouver, Oregon. Work. Corey's a beauty. Yeah, he does uh, novel movements. And uh, if you watch his videos, he'll use the term or the phrasing, Help, this helps your patients increase their movement repertoire. And I absolutely love the sound of that. And I, I do use a lot of, and I'm really glad you brought that into the conversation, Jamie, because I do a lot of novel movements with my active movements with my patients and they absolutely love it. A lot, a lot of the stuff that I teach, Corey. I got from Corey. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up. You guys, thank you so much for being on the show. So I want to, uh, if you guys all want to just tell people, how can they find you? Do you have anything interesting and exciting you might want to share with people, uh, your websites or anything like that? Let's go ahead and just drop those. So Susan, why don't you go ahead and go first? Okay. So, uh, I have, uh, susansalvo.com and I have my favorite, I have a blog massage passport. Um, that might be a fun place to go to, to look for evidence informed practice stuff. I and I do a lot right of history now. of massage. If you like history or uh, geriatrics, cancer, all the stuff, um, fibromyalgia is on there. Uh, really fun stuff. Uh, again, my textbooks are probably the, the best way just to keep up to date. They come in every four years. And they're and again, I'm really researching about keeping everything up to date. And I'm a real big word nerd. So um, I really uh, research. Uh, I use concept mapping with a lot of my concepts, which is kind of fun. Uh, but again, or Susan Salvo, I'm, don't laugh at hotmail.com. That is my <laughs> web address. I'm a dinosaur when it That's comes so to old school, Susan. Old. <laughs> but, uh, but I love to communicate with massage therapists. I love new ideas. And again, just a, a parting thought for everyone, everyone is uh, it's not the answers that enlighten, but the questions. The questions are so important. Ask lots of questions. Yes. 
All right, Jamie, how about you? Uh, so my website is the mtdc.com. So it's T H E M T D C.com. Uh, there's tons of blog posts on there that are all based around evidence-based practice. Uh, got several online courses coming up. I'm doing a webinar in June, uh, called from feared to functional, which is all about understanding the fear avoidance model of pain and educating your patient that movement is safe and how to start incorporating that into your treatments and, and being able to communicate with them effectively. Uh, I can't remember the exact dates, but it's June 18th or something around there, but there'll be updates on the site. Uh, and of course, teach a bunch of in-person courses, but uh, ramping up to do more online stuff. So uh, if anybody wants to reach out and um, learn some more stuff or be on our podcast, uh, we're happy to, to host more people and, and get more content out there. Awesome. All right. And then Rob, how can people find you? Uh, it's pretty concise. If you look up at Rob J. Haddo on any of the social media, you'll get me Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I have a YouTube channel. Just look up Robert Haddle. There's, I think there's about, I don't know, 300 or 400 videos up on there of different remedial exercises. And we had from the table talks for a while where we talk with different therapists about experiences they've had, things like that. Uh, teaching, consulting. Marcy and I are currently doing a DNM and headache course. And then for consulting, I just do one-on-one and again, can be reached through at Rob J. Haddo at any of those spots or through my website at www.haddomassage.com. And with that, I usually prefer to do more one-on-one. Sometimes I do group work for different clinics, but usually I prefer one-on-one and people can come in with their patient. We can go over stuff and try to try to establish that questioning criteria. Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. So um, Rob, Susan, Jamie, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you all and have you on the show. Thank you so much for being here. And hopefully we'll have you you guys back again. That's a great conversation. I think you have so much to share uh, with our community. So it's amazing. Um, And friends, you've been listening to the USOLMT Massage Podcast. Uh, USOLMT is a new national association in the United States for massage therapists. Um, We're open to students, professionals, educators, uh, employers, and our home is to uh, elevate our field, encouraging massage therapists to get more involved in advocacy for our profession um, and to work towards moving our profession forward and finding our collective voice. So uh, we can move our profession forward in ways that actually work for us and support us as professionals. So you can find out more there at www.uslmt.com and we'll return on June 5th for our next episode with three more amazing guests and we'll see you next time.